If you have your Bibles, would you turn to me, or turn with me to James chapter 3. Uh, if you haven't been here over the last few weeks, uh, I, um, we have been preaching, Pastor Jeff and I have been preaching on the book of James, or the letter of James, as it's more appropriately uh, known. And uh, I have found it quite exciting, and I, 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 I've, I've been learning a great deal. And um, I, I guess one of the things that I recognize uh, about myself is that I love to learn. Um, I love to um, be challenged. I love to grow in my understanding. But with that comes the danger that it only becomes about understanding and knowledge. And certainly what James would impress upon us is that whatever we understand about faith, whatever we claim to be true about our confession ought to be evident in our life. That faith is not just intellectualization. It is not just the ability to have a certain way of thinking. It is a thinking that manifests itself in our daily lives. And so James would say to you and me, that I know how deep your faith runs by how you love your neighbor. James would say to you and me, I know how deep your faith runs with how you relate to those who oppose you. James would say to you and me that I know what kind of faith you have by the way in which you use what God has given you to be a blessing to others. James, in its simplicity, teaches us about a faith that is transforming, a faith that is not contained, a faith that certainly is not just about me. And so this morning, as I share with you something rather simple, I trust that God would speak and that we would hear. James, reading from uh, chapter 3, verses 13, and then chapter 4 to verse 10. I invite you this morning to stand with me in uh, honor of the Word of God. And when I've done reading this morning, I will pray and you may be seated again. James chapter 3, reading from verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think, Scripture says without reason, that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. 
Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. Father, this is Your Word. May the simplicity of human thought not limit what Your Spirit can do. And may we all receive that which You have to say in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In my opinion, the the beauty of James is that he impresses upon us a Christianity that is about a life well lived. A Christian life is the type of life that is not just limited to what I believe. It is not, in other words, creedal or simply confessional. It is not just to be born into a Christian home and thereby grow up as a Christian. For James, faith is transformative. Faith changes us. Faith matures us. Faith grows us. To be a Christian is to be saved, yes, and salvation is key, important, valuable, a gracious, wonderful gift that comes from God. But salvation is not the end of our Christian life, it is the beginning of our Christian life. And James would have us believe that it is not just about a decision to be a Christian, but it is about the willingness in cooperation with God to have that faith develop and grow and mature. The question we ask in our church and will ask consistently, are we growing in our faith? Are we maturing in our faith? And by that, I do not simply mean, do we understand more about Scripture, though that would be good. Do you know that all indications are, as educated as we are today in the West, that biblical literacy, literacy has declined to levels unlike any seen over the last hundred years? Did you know that, that, that literacy, uh, biblical literacy in the church is one of the most necessary things that we need to focus on again? And we have to be careful, of course, that we don't just simply uh, uh, try to educate you biblically for the sake of knowledge, but as James says, for the sake of knowing the heart of God, the will of God, and being able to live in His ways. Uh, To be a Christian, yes, is to be saved, but it is about a life that is constantly maturing. I like to think of that as a life that is uh, being sanctified, set apart uh, by God for His purpose. Uh, you know, there, there is a portion of Scripture where the Apostle Paul says this. He says, he says to his audience, just listen to this. He says, I want you to follow me as I follow Christ. How audacious is Paul? I mean, when I thought about that, you know, that very phrase, follow me as I follow Christ, I thought, Paul, you wouldn't go over well in, in Canadian culture. You, you, wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't find a lot of resonance because our Canadian culture is one in which anybody who rises just a little bit too much above uh, the level of others is, is kind of scrutinized. Anybody that asserts to live in a particular way that actually has to be modeled. Have you ever noticed that? We, we treat them with suspicion. I've actually started to think about this deeply, and I thought about the church, and I thought, this is what often happens, and I caught myself doing this. So this is somewhat confessional. There are times where I preach with deep conviction. I, you know, God is saying this in my life, <laughs> and, and, and God is, is doing this in my life. And, and then I would qualify that, and I would say this. Just stay with me. This all makes wonderful sense at the end of it. Um, uh, you know, then, then I would say to you as a congregation, I would say, you know, not that I have yet attained this. Have you ever noticed? 
You know, and I know that many of you appreciate that because you say, you know, the pastor is not thinking of himself as so much better than everybody else. That's a good thing. But you know what this maturing life implies? It implies that what Paul says is really possible. That actually what ought to happen in the church is people that are maturing in such a way that we could say without any sense of pride and look at me, but we could actually model with our life what it means to follow Jesus. That there would be more of us who believes that as we mature in our faith, we could literally say, follow me as I follow him. Would that not be something that incarnates faith for our children? Would it not be something that speaks to the reality of our faith within our workplace? Would it not be so necessary for us as a church to actually start believing that we can attain what Jesus said we can attain? I think we fight a culture in which we have diminished all of ourselves and our spiritual abilities, so to speak, to such an extent that no one wants to take responsibility and accountability for a maturing faith that is accountable for those who look to us. You know, when the Apostle Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ, he's saying, I am living a maturing faith. I am no longer what I once was. I am growing. I'm becoming what Christ wants me to be. And the reason he can say it with confidence is because we see it evident in his life. Can I say this if you hear nothing else about the wonderful exegetical work that I've done with the rest of the text and only remember this, let me say this. Be all that Christ has called you to be, not only for your own sake, but for the sake of others. Let us stop excusing ourselves. And if you catch your pastor doing that, I want you to stand up in church. I'm going to give everyone a red flag and a green flag. And, wow, tough crowd. And, and, and I want you to say, pastor, I'm calling you out on this. Because it's not okay to every Sunday just simply say, I, I'm not doing it. I'm not living it. I believe. That God's sanctifying power, His Spirit works along with my obedience and humility to foster in me the kind of person that He has destined me to be. I want to say to you, follow me as I follow Christ. I want you as parents to take this to heart, that faith is formed in the home. Uh, Children will learn faith from you. Uh, You know, that we would outsource the responsibility of faith formation to others is not what is truly uh, beneficial to our children, but that we would model in our home a faith that is committed to the work and and the ministry of the Spirit of God. You know... I, I, I am so, I'm so glad to be a dad, and I'm so happy to have three wonderful children. Um, I'm reminded um, of my responsibility with my children so much over these uh, last few months. You know, when we sit down to have dinner, and, uh, you know, there used to be that they would fight to pray because it was kind of a privilege and an opportunity for the spotlight. Now in our home, they don't want to pray. And, and so I sit at the, the head of the table and I say, I say to our children, would anybody like to pray? I do this every, every time we sit down for dinner. And inevitably, no. They used to fight, now they point to the other. You pray, you pray, you pray. And in my, in my, in my relationship with my children and my wife, I, I learn, I learn that how I can help my children to understand what prayer means. The gift of prayer. 
I, I want them to understand that when we say thank you, I mean, this is just a sidebar, but can I just show you how simple it is to model faith, how simple it is for us to take this responsibility seriously? I try to teach my kids about what it means to, to have what we have in the simple things that we often take for granted. Listen, I want to live a Christian life, an embodied life, a life that represents Jesus in my daily actions. And I think that is what's often mis- mis- missing in many of our lives. When there is a profession that is not backed up with a lifestyle, I don't think that is what Christ has in mind. Um, We have reflected upon many themes over the last few weeks. And this morning, as we read the scripture, I want us to consider how James challenges again to consider wisdom from God as helping us to live lives of peace and not lives defined by conflict. I, I want us to consider what it means to be people who are committed to the purposes of God, in particular as it relates to conflict within our life. One of the things that is often missing uh, in our understanding of Scripture is the big picture. I constantly harp on that. I think that when we jump into text without maybe understanding the context and who is being spoken to, that we miss the realities of the day and sometimes misappropriate what it would mean for us today. The Scripture we are reflecting upon this morning deals with the issue of conflict within the community. That James is writing to predominantly Jewish Christians, so stay with me for a while, who are living outside of Palestine or are followers of Christ is significant. It is more significant because the nature of James's words of critique and challenge in the text teaches us something about the Christian community. That in their midst, there was the absence of peace and the grace of God, and they were experiencing conflict with one another. That there was conflict defined by damaging speech. There were those who were saying things, rumors were being spread, backbiting, however you want to define that. There was hostility and even the possibility of violence within the community of faith. It is only more shocking to understand James's context when you consider that most of what he teaches in James is directed to the teachers and the leaders within such communities. This should alert us very, very, very importantly to the reality that to become a follower of Christ does not imply, at least in James's perspective, that with such a decision, everything within us is immediately orientated to the will of God, towards the way, ways of God. To be a follower is to mature and to grow. And when you become a Christian, it does not automatically mean that all of a sudden you will the will of God. You desire the will of God, that you do not allow your desires, your cravings, your wants to get in the way of that will. How many of us have ever been disappointed by a Christian? Five. You know, let let me speak to this very quickly and very clearly. Oftentimes, the reasons we're disappointed with Christians is because we have an expectation that Christians would be a lot more than they are living up to. You can say amen. Sometimes we're disappointed by others who profess to know God because their behavior clearly indicates that there is a conflict within them. They do not live by what they profess. Can I just say this to you folks? Part of that 
part of that disappointment is generated out of our poor understanding of the Christian life. Salvation, yes, saves us as an act of grace by the mercy of God. But what is still often needed and is absent in many a Christian life is a maturing faith that grows us up into the fear and the love of God. That deals with our temperance, that deals with our anger, that deals with our dishonest tongue, that deals with all the things within us that ultimately still have to change. And what James would say time upon time is that Christians must learn to persevere and endure all within the context that true growth takes time. True maturation takes time. If you are sitting here this morning, you're saying, you know what, I've started to give up that I could change because I just feel like, man, it's the same thing over and over and over again. Listen, let me not give us all like this, you know, this, this, this kind of escape clause today. I want to make certain you understand that I believe God wants us to mature and to be able to say what the Apostle Paul says. But I also want us to understand that spiritual formation and growth by the Spirit of God often takes time and a lot more time than we give it. Learn to be patient with one another. Learn to endure. Learn to persevere. Learn to hold accountable. Yes, learn to pray. Learn to call out when there's dishonesty. But learn, my friends, that we are not transformed in, in, in a moment where everything is the way we desire to have. I think part of the reason we are so disappointed is because we have incorporated a cultural urgency into the church that says everything I want, I must have now. When there is a gift that God gives us to a maturing faith that happens in season and by his design in his time are you committed to the process of maturing are you committed to the process of growing in your faith i want to challenge those of us who have said you know i've just kind of decided that this is who i am i want you to understand that he who has begun a good work in you he is faithful to bring that work unto completion praise be to god but such work is not done in a vacuum it is not that god applies his spiritual power upon your life and though he can in an instant you are the most calm collected patient enduring loving husband but through the trials that James speaks of, he's refining for him somebody who can trust him even when he faces opposition and he's bringing about his purposes within my life. This is good news. Are you committed to this Christ who works within us over time? Not only are we faced with the reality of conflict within the community, which can become a reality for us as a church, and maybe I should speak to that. I, uh, I was very naive, uh, you know, uh, in my early 20s, um, which was just a number of years ago. I didn't pause so that you would laugh at me, but nonetheless... I'm glad you feel free to do that. I entered ministry rather, you know, with, a, with, with, with kind of that bright-eyed optimism. The kind of optimism that, 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 that would suggest that I, I'm going to have a youth group, because I was a youth pastor, and, and they were going to, like, listen to every word I say. And, and they were going to be, like, 
so awesome. You know, youth pastor, you're the greatest in the world. And then I was going to be a part of a church in which everybody is just sacrificial and giving and going and doing. And, you know, and, and I wanted to be a part of church uh, unlike any other church I've seen that doesn't do what I think it ought to do. And so I became a pastor. And I can tell you this just from my personal experience, how God was growing and maturing me. He slowly, through the realities of ministry and through realities of life, through the realities that people don't often listen, uh, through the realities that sometimes even in the church we tend to argue and fight and not have a good way of resolving conflict, that what needed to change in order to change the church, if the church was in need of such reformation, was not the reality of conflict coming from others, but was the need for me to mature and grow. You know, uh, one of the things we tend to do in conflict, we tend to project that on others as them being the source and reason. James would teach us in this particular context, he would say, you know, the conflict that is in the community, yes, it's there, may even be shocking to us as we listen to it because these were followers of Jesus, or maybe it's not shocking because we've seen this happen in church after church, but James would say this to us, he would say, the conflict that is evident in the community is not a conflict that originated outside, it is a conflict that originated inside and particularly within the cravings and the desires within the person. You know, the cravings and desires in James is defined by words that speaks to selfishness, self-centeredness, envy, and selfish ambition. Uh, Socrates said that envy is the ulcer of the soul. And I believe it is Aristotle that said it is a certain sorrow. An ulcer of the soul because envy has the ability to not only remain within me, but to affect others and to spread like a virus to the parts of the body. A certain sorrow because envy desires what it does not have and ultimately someone feels as if they had lost. Not only is there a conflict within the community, but the source of the conflict is personal and internal. It is within the heart of a person. Dare I suggest this today? And I don't want to make James speak to every situation and circumstance we face. But could it be that there is wisdom today in what James says? That oftentimes the conflict we experience within our lives, the origins of that conflict is the unmet desires within us. And particularly, he would say it this way, it is the self-serving desires that when left unmet leads to, and he becomes really graphic here, he says when those desires are unmet, they ultimately lead to murder. They ultimately lead to violence. They ultimately lead to disorder. You know, one of the key facets of Christian spirituality is that the individual can influence others. And yet in our culture, what do we hear consistently? Your individual feelings is your individual rights and you can have those irrespective of how it affects the rest of us until it affects the rest of us 
And what James would teach here, he says, your desires, if not brought under the ministry of God, if not brought under the ministry of the Spirit, will have an impact if it is not attuned and taken care of by the Spirit of God. It can create problems not only for you, but in others. Your spiritual life is not your own private life. It is a life that exists in relationship with others. And how you tend to your desires is an important part of it. What desires do we have? What is the motivations we have? How is our life contributing to the health of our family and our church? He says, those conflicts and disputes among you, where do they come from? Do they not come from your cravings that are at war within you? You know what the ancient philosophers believed? They believed that these cravings have no boundaries and that the eventual outcome is social unrest and chaos. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. In every commentator that I read on this subject, no one implied that envy and selfish ambition is a gender-specific issue. When I was in youth ministry, I'd always hear that it's the girls who gossip and they're really jealous. But I have to say to you this morning that I believe this is something that is more prevalent than in just a specific group. It is something that is, that is uh, you know, uh, so easy to creep into the heart of man. And in fact, James will prove that, that we can even pray and ask God for right things, but our motivations are ultimately still self-serving. You know, I, I'm convinced, I am more and more convinced that the reason I need to be a part of a Christian community, the, the reason I'm saved by grace and not by my own works, is because I truly, in the matters of the heart, am powerless to bring about the transformation. I need God and I need others so that I can be honest with myself and honest with Him. Even the, the, the most noble of us here can have motivations in our heart that are ultimately self-serving no matter how noble they seem in character don't ask me to say that again I know you want to I gotta go to my notes how does uh, James propose that we respond to these conflicts. He says, by dealing with the root of the problem. He says uh, that his answer requires a particular kind of wisdom. And if you're studying James or reading along and, and, and listening online or however you are appropriating the scripture, uh, you would notice that, that James constantly has kind of this dualistic way, uh, this comparative way of speaking about things. And so here he speaks about two kinds of wisdom. He says that if you want to be a person that lives at peace and have your motivations aligned with the will of God, you need a particular wisdom. He says that this wisdom, according to verse 17, is a wisdom that comes from above. It's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to heal, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. What James stresses from the very first chapter is the critical need for wisdom within the person. This wisdom James defined as being different to the kind of wisdom that is being made apparent within the community. 
uh, the prevailing wisdom is considered to be a wisdom that comes from below. It's earthly. And he even uses some graphic language. He says, it is from the devil. The prevailing wisdom is leading to conflict and chaos. chaos. This wisdom, he says, is not God's wisdom. And he defines that wisdom as being in conflict with God's wisdom. In fact, he uses the word double-mindedness and then becomes very, very graphic when he calls the people adulterers. He says, you are adulterers because you are not living faithfully to the God of covenant. Now, the word adulterer, of course, in this context has to be understood within the cultic tradition of the Israelites. It has to be understood within the Hebraic culture. Because you know what God says to the people of God in the Old Testament? He says, I want that you would be my bride. Did you guys know that? There's a wonderful book for those of you old enough, and your parents need to exercise censorship on this, but it's a great book. I think it's called Redeeming Love by Francine Rivers. Anybody read that book? I mean, it's one of those books that I wouldn't admit reading because it has like a girly cover to it. My wife has the whole collection. And she has passed that book on and bought it again because she's given it away to people over the years. And it's a wonderful book because in essence, what she does is she retells this relationship that God has with these people. And one of the most striking images of God's unfailing love for his bride is found in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Hosea is a prophet of God, called of God. He's set apart from God to speak God's word. And every indication in Hosea is that he wants to be faithful to that calling. Then God comes to him and God says, I want you to marry Goma. Goma is not just any woman. She's a woman of ill reputation. In fact, she is a prostitute according to the text. And the prophet digs deep. He goes and he marries her, a woman of ill repute with threat to his own character and nature on the line. He marries her and things seem to turn around. You know, seem, things seem to kind of work out. They, they, they get along. They have three kids that are, are, are just, uh, you know, poorly named in Scripture. And, 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 and it, seems, it seems like everything goes well. And just as everything seems to go well, Goma leaves the security of relationship and family and home. And she returns to her life. And when you read this particular portion of Scripture, I mean, there's a gasp, right? There's, there's a sense of, oh my gosh, she's been redeemed from so much. She's, she's been taken by a good man who probably would provide for us. She has wonderful children and she returns to this life. And the Scripture is profound because it teaches us that God instructs this prophet. He says, Hosea, I want you to go and get her back. So he literally goes. And if you read the text carefully enough, he, 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 he comes as a paying customer to redeem his wife unto himself. And when we read the story of Hosea of Goma, this is just generally how the Western evangelical mind interprets it. God wants me to be like Hosea, you know, who forgives and goes after the person. No, the implication of the text is, Israel, you are like Goma. Christians, you are like the one who, even though I have been covenantly committed to you faithfully, even though I died on the cross and came to pay the price to redeem you back, you are the one that time upon time forsakes my faith. Faithfulness to you. 
And when James uses this word, he's saying, when you behave the way you do, when you allow conflict to become a part of your community, when you allow envy and selfish ambition to grab a hold of your heart, what you are ultimately doing is you're cheating on the relationship you have with me. Because in our relationship of covenant faithfulness, this is not how you behave. This ought not to be. Do you know the ancient understanding of friendship was to see things the same way? It's not a a Western way of understanding it, of course. It's more of an Eastern way of understanding that friendships have the same perspective. They, they, They have the same worldview. I think what James is saying is you began to see the way that God wants you to live. But at some other point, your eyes strayed somewhere else and you started to live in a way that is contrary. And this is what he says. You cannot be double sided. You cannot be double minded. You cannot love a worldly way and love me. It does not work. It is a conflict of interest. It is a war within you that ultimately you give in to. And this is the result. So James calls the community back to a a faithfulness. A desire that is tempered according to the Spirit of God. I want to offer you in closing... My understanding, and very, very practical now, not so much exegetical. What James says is the answer for the early church. I want you to look at verse 6 of chapter 4. This is what he says. But he gives all the more grace. Therefore it says... God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. All very hard words to listen in a Western framework in a 2013. It helps a little bit to understand that, of course, James's point of reference to an early Christian community is very Judaic, very Hebraic. But within James's words, there is the encouraging reality that if conflict marks the life of a community or an individual, that by the grace of God, it is possible to return to a place of peace and shalom. That God will receive his bride again, that God would receive us by his grace again. Uh, there's one thing that, that I think is important for us before I give you very practical ways of appropriating this in your life in honor of James, the practical theologian. Recognize that our motivations really matter to God. You know, in, in verse 2, the second part, it says, you do not have because you do not ask. There's every indication to understand that James is saying this, these people are actually asking God something. And he goes further in verse 3. He says, they ask and do not receive because they ask wrongly. They ask with the wrong motivation in order to spend what you get on your pleasures. You see, the implication in the text is that those who are in conflict in the believing community are considered as ones who pray. But what they ultimately do is even if they are asking for something good, the motivation is that whatever God gives them, they will use for their own sake and not 
in accordance with the will of God. I don't know, I'm punching above my weight class now, but I want to suggest something. I want to suggest to you that that maybe there is a lot of truth to what James says about unanswered prayer. You know, many of us have prayed for different things in our lives. We have asked God to help us at times. These are good things. I've, I've yet to hear Christians pray for necessarily bad things. I mean, generally speaking, Christians ask for good things. But I think what James is implying here is he says that what matters to God, beyond what he gives to you from his hand, is your heart. Do you will what he wills? Do you desire what he desires? And if God would give you what you desire, would that desire lead you to a deeper love for him and others, which is at the heart of James? Would what God gives you as blessing in your life serve the purposes of God and not your own? Do you get how profound this is? That when we pray, it's not simply about asking for the right thing, but it is asking from the right disposition of the heart. It is asking for that which ultimately is going to bring glory to God and to others. Of such prayer, according to James, we can be assured God will answer. What we ask matters to Him, our motivation of our hearts. But the wisdom that returns us to the place of peace asks us to keep in mind that our motivation to God matters. And it requires of us humility to come before God with the assurance that He will not reject us. The scripture that says this, He says, if we draw near to Him, He will draw near to us. You know, I, I don't think we often know how to confess in the Protestant church. We think that's very Catholic. We, we, we think we, we ought not to be people of confession. It kind of comes back to this idea that when we're saved, right, we're not going to sin again. I noticed by some of the smiles that you're agreeing with me. But you know, a maturing faith is a maturing faith because the more we grow in our faith, the more we become aware of the things in our life that is just not right. It's kind of like marriage. You thought you were perfect until you got married, didn't you? You thought everything was fine until you got married. And then you started to realize, boy, there's a lot about me apparently that is not as good as I thought it was. I think it's appropriate that we think of it that way because this is our relationship with Christ. When we enter into this relationship, there are things about us that become evident that is just not right. And one of the ways to deal with that is through confession. Now, let me, let me give you some practical guidance. And this comes through a friend of mine's comments to me recently that I share with you. So I do not take any uh, uh, responsibility for what I say next. No, I, I do not take any credit for what I say next. To confess sin is to acknowledge that in fact, I have committed sin. It is naming reality. It is thinking specifically about what I've done that is just not right. I know this doesn't seem profound, but oh, how deceptive we are when we never actually think about it soberly as something which is not the will of God for us. True confession begins with naming the reality, knowing that there is something I have done that has been displeasing to God, that there is something that has created harm or has the potential to do so. 
But it's not only just about confessing what is wrong. It is about accepting the responsibility for my sin. You know, when Adam was confronted, did you know this in our creation narrative? When he was confronted by God for eating the fruit, not an apple, by the way, we don't know, right? But apple makes a lot more sense when you're teaching it like to kids, right? Because who doesn't like a good apple? But the moment that God actually approaches Adam and he, you know what the first thing he does? Anybody remember your Sunday school lesson? He says, the woman made me do it. And that hasn't stopped. You know, when it comes to not only owning our sin, it comes to us actually stop projecting when there's conflict in particular. The reason for that is solely resting in someone else's actions. You know, we live in this, 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 really, this really strange place now where everything is someone else's fault. Have you ever noticed? It's always someone else's fault. The reason I am the way I am, it's just someone else's fault. The reason I just punched that guy, it's his fault. You know, Christian spirituality brings to us a, a sobering truth that, listen, it, it is internal and that we must come to face the reality and take responsibility. Listen, I, I, I don't be an Adam. Today, if there is something in your life, a place of conflict, the, the, the most important thing you must do is ask yourself, what is my culpability? What is my sin? What is my wrong? And respond accordingly. And the, 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 the way to respond to when you own what is yours to own is to ask for mercy, is to throw yourself upon the mercy of God with the assurance that according to Scripture, when you do, He will not turn His back on you. One of the worst things, one of the worst things that I experienced as a kid was when I entrusted myself to someone who let me down as a child in particular. I have several memories. I have several, several thoughts that come to my mind. You know, when, when, when you trust somebody and you give yourself to them and you, 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 you kind of say, I believe something about you and they don't come through, that hurts. That, 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 that reorients something in your heart forever where you're always asking a second question. Is, this is too good to be true. It affects some of our marriages because some of us just don't know how to trust our spouse that deeply because we've been hurt in the past. Am I, am I making sense to you? But you know what, what James says to us? The reason you can actually confess, the reason you can be clean. The reason you can be yourself is because God will not turn you away. He will not let you down. He will not turn you away. Listen, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've fallen. It doesn't matter what you've caused in your life. And can I say this to you? Confession is not getting rid of the consequences. Can I just make that clear too? Sometimes we think confession means that now I get out of the consequences of my sin. That's not true. You know, we, sometimes we, we, that's how we pray. We say, you know, God, ooh, I made a mistake and, and forgive me and then make everything go away. God doesn't do that. 
Because he wants you and me to know that sin has consequences, my friends. Sin creates problems. It hurts. It creates what the, the James is saying. It eventually leads to death. Listen, when you confess, do not have the false understanding that what you have done wrong is somehow in that moment the consequences are taken away. Here's the sober reality of what James is teaching. He's saying, listen, confess, yes. Mourn, wail. When I read those words, I was like, oh, maybe I should stop this scripture reading right before this difficult part because I don't know how we're going to respond to wailing and mourning you know but you know what he's saying is he says the reason you wail and you mourn is because you deeply understand that what your actions has done has really created problems and hurt people the reason there is not true confession true repentance is because many of us fail to appropriate what sin really does. Blame it on culture. Blame it on spiritual blindness. But not only do we accept responsibility for our sin, we ask for the mercy of God, and we receive the mercy of God by trusting that God forgives us. And then finally, we turn from sin to the ways of God. Repentance means that we actually leave sinful behavior behind. In James, sinful behavior is defined in many ways. Abusing others economically. Using our tongues to create destruction. To curse, not to bless, he says. To sin is to profess, but not to live. And for James, what is important in a faith that works is not only a faith that makes confession about what I have said or even what I believe, but evident in turning away from sin. If we are to say to our children, follow me as I follow Christ, then I hope what we mean is this, that we are learning to live as overcomers And that sin is having less and less dominance in our life. This is not a popular message to preach. I can can give you a, a different character of this message that is much more popular to preach. It goes something like this. God's grace runs so deep that no matter what you do, He will always love you. And so essentially what that theology does is this. I will stay a repeating offender all my life Because the grace of God is there to save me. You know what the sad part of that is? That it is true. But how much we miss out on the life and the person he wants to shape. This morning, let us learn as a community. You know, it's wonderful to preach on conflict when there's no apparent conflict, isn't it? It's the best time to preach on it. Because my sense is, is if that was conflict, and I preached on this, you would go, he's just being, you know, he's just being picky, you know. Why can't the pastor just pretend? But I think the, the, the appropriate time for us to listen to James is now, because in every way God has blessed us as a community. Oh, how grateful I am for Skyview Church. 
He turned something in my heart, you know, this past year. He made me see the beauty of the church unlike I've ever seen it before. You know, the beauty of the church was no longer in my idealism of how perfectly we all get along and get things done. But in the fact that God, through His Spirit, is at work within lives. In fact, I know He's at work because this morning we, we're going to end our time of hearing the Word by just talking very briefly with two of our friends. And uh, just before I call them up, um, Jody, do we have that video ready? Um, just a little short clip I want to show you and then we'll finish off. 